This is Radio Influence. Podcasting redefined. This is the place that the UFC and Bellator come to for the inside scoop of what's going on in the world of mixed martial arts. The doors of the gym are opened up just for you. We are the MMA Insiders. Here are your hosts, Jason Floyd of the MMA Report and the president of Combat Sports Media, Sam Kaplan. I'm a white boy and I'm Jack. Deal with it. You know, so what, what, do you, what do you want me to say? I'm a white boy and I'm Jack. Deal with it. Yeah, I don't think that's fair. I think that's a, that's a lot of bullshit. I think that's rubbish. I, I don't think anyone should be exempt from, from testing. If they're trying to clean this sport up, mixed martial arts, uh, this is a bad way to do it. I mean, um, I don't care who you are. It, it's ridiculous. I mean, I mean, the, the cyclist guy got he got done for so many years of cheating, and imagine if he came back with exempt formats. It's, I don't think it's a, I don't think it's a great move. I, I, you know, I think he's used to the gills. Well, I mean, it, it's an unfortunate uh, stage of events that happened, but. Uh, it is, like I said, it is what it is. Uh, it's unfortunate for D.C., I guess. I feel really bad for D.C. And, and to, um, you know, guys work hard and they go through training camps and they put lots of time in. And, and that's the guy that really gets the short end of the stick out of this deal. So it's really unprofessional of, uh, of anybody uh, at this caliber to, for something like that to happen, I guess. Sam, I got to ask you, man, where did you find out the news Brock Lesnar had had been flagged for a potential anti-doping policy violation. You know, I don't even remember to be exact, Jason. There's been so many big <laughs> news stories in the last couple of weeks, so many bombshells that I'm, they're all running together, and I, I can't frame one instance against another now. It's, it's all bleeding together. It's like one big blur now. It's just too much. It's too much. Uh, yeah, it's to the point now where it's just you're you're not surprised anymore when when this news came out. I mean, you know, and obviously Brock is you know he had his short statement and, and he's going to battle this. I'll tell you this, Sam. I thought the WWE statement was a complete joke. <laughs> I mean, well, it's such a non-statement. Why even issue? Uh, it's all this stuff that keeps coming. It's you remember the uh, part in Anchorman where Luke Wilson is uh, by the. Uh, by the zoo, he's in the zoo, and his arms keep getting taken off. Yeah, he's like, "Come on, man! That's 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 what I feel like right now." Yeah, just, just stop. Just yeah, stop. It, I was it, I was I was hoping we'd be able to take this week off, and uh, you know, next thing you know, I got a tweet from you, and you said, "Oh, looks like I know what we're really talking about Monday." <laughs> I think that's how I got tipped off to this. I'm like, well, "What's he talking about?" <laughs> and then I went to a website, and I'm like, "Oh my god." Yeah, you you talk about, I mean, and you know, and obviously the big you know question mark that's going to come up, and, and we'll talk about it is, you know, when drug test results are not expedited, and, and we'll see if any ultimate changes are made after what happened, uh, you know, at UFC 200. But of course, we're going to get into the Brock Lesnar thing, you know, situation here on this edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. Of course, I'm Jason Floyd of the MMAReport.com, and of course, you just heard. Sam Kaplan, the president of Combat Sports Media. Of course, you can listen to this show on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud, and also on RadioInfluence.com. Also, we'll talk about what happened uh, this past weekend in London with Michael Page, Cyborg Santos, a fight card being aired on tape delay, and, well, apparently uh, Bellator just decided to give you the uh, the fight ending on Twitter on Saturday afternoon <laughs> as opposed to still a Sam a decision that I, I'm kind of baffled by. Also, can talk about how I learned about the fact of Darian Caldwell 
has a no contest on his record from a fight in Bellator. Also, a lot of other things going on in the world of mixed martial arts. But, you know, Sam, how was your weekend, man? It was fine, uh, other than the Brock Lesnar situation. I, I think that I, I do owe the Brock Lesnar camp an apology because I think that I, like many people, have jumped the gun. We still don't know exactly the reason why there was a positive test failure. Obviously, he's going to have his side. The th- rumor that we're hearing now is that it could be asthma medication related. It, it could be Advair, uh, some form of Advair, which which sounds kind of out there. But at the same time, apparently he passed his f- first four USADA tests. That would actually be as far-fetched as it is. It actually would be a logical explanation. because Otherwise... There's very little logic that I can come up with as to why he would pass four tests and then fail the fifth. Either there's an issue with USADA's testing methods, the laboratories that they're using, or he was using some kind of blocker or some kind of masking agent and the masking agent wore off and suddenly something showed up in that fifth test. Or maybe he's got some next level type stuff. That's kind of like a super serum that the military uses, and it was a fast-acting thing that he dropped, you know, uh, two weeks before the fight, you know, knowing that he would get this huge instant uh, result without having to have to use something a couple months before. I mean, maybe there's some laboratories out there coming up with some next-level type stuff that we don't know about. It's always possible. These laboratories typically are ahead of the game when it comes to testing sometimes, but there's got to be an explanation as to why you pass the first four tests and then fail the fifth. That is the one thing that Brock Lesnar has going for him. Cause otherwise, you know, he, he looks pretty guilty here, but th- it, again, I come, come back to the fact that you pass for the first four tests and then fail the fifth. Something's up. Something is up. I don't know what it is, but something's up. Yeah. I mean, obviously look, he, he is going to have his day to, to fight this, uh, you know he'll he'll be on the next Nevada Athletic Commission hearing for a temporary suspension, just like John Jones was on Monday. Of course, you know we, we found out the the substances, you know not just one but two estrogen blockers, which this is something that Shell Sonnen had talked about. Uh, Rashad Evans ori- initially said it on, on a CBSSports.com video, which I'll tell you this: anyone uh, I, I listen to Joe Rogan and, and Shell Sonnen's podcast, if you if you've got time, I, I would I would highly recommend it. Was you know. One of the things that uh, you know really stuck out to me with Shelson said he he go he goes once your first fight ends the promotion for the next fight starts and I hope a lot of UFC fighters and MMA fighters in general listen to what he said there he said he goes if you sit there and tell me you don't care who your next opponent is as a fan why should I care who your next opponent is. And I thought that was a very interesting comment by Shell Son about basically, you know, basically saying these guys say, "Oh, I'll fight whoever the UFC or Bellator gives me." Of why you need to start calling out your fights, and because you know what, I mean, look at Michael Chiesa. I mean, everyone kind of when he called out Tony Ferguson, everyone was like, "What is is Michael Chiesa doing?" And then all of a sudden he got the fight. So I, I thought that was very interesting, you know, coming from Shell Son. And it, but you know, you know, John, obviously he's going to go through his situations, and if he's able to prove. That those you know his sub, sub, supplements were tainted. You know he's looking at a, a Yoel Romero, Tim Means type suspension of six to nine months. 
But ultimately, that's going to have to be proven. I mean, in, in my understanding, the way this works is he turns over all of his supplements over to USADA. Then USADA will go to you know the local you know health and nutrition store. They will buy those same supplements. They'll test those supplements to see if the results come back the same. So you know if you're John Jones Camp and you, you got to hope that those over the counter supplements come back. But you know, still, it's just one of those things, Sam. I go. When you're making the kind of money John Jones is making, how are you not testing the supplements you're putting in your body? There's one thing that I thought of, that there could be a potential hole in USADA's program and in, in, in the fact that they give the fighters the option, if they claim a tainted supplement, supplement defense, to go test the supplement. What if they're using a true estrogen blocker for the wrong reasons? It's, it's, they're using it in a pure way to mask something or to generate uh, t- testosterone growth naturally. What if they're using it? And they find out, they know what they tested positive for, and they do their research, and they find supplements out there that are being produced that aren't regulated by the FDA that have the presence of what they tested positive for. It's a way to kind of potentially reverse engineer your defense. What is that? Is that something that is possible? And what if you, I mean, what if you test positive for PED A and you're just using PED A in a pure form straight up and you, you know, and you're using it for nefarious reasons. It's not accidental. It's deliberate. And then you, you find out you test positive for it. And then you do your research, you do your homework and you find out that supplement, uh, you know, probiotic neutrino has that element in it and then you claim that that's what you were using and you turn that over and of course it tests positive for it because you did your research and you found out that it has it in it yeah i i have thought of that exact same thing as well sam you can't you can't help but think about something like that but is is that you know i'm not an expert on this stuff i'll be quite candid and honest about that i i know i don't know that much about peds i have no experience with them and it's the type of thing where unless you're amongst that culture, you're really not going to be an expert on it. And, I, I, and I'm not ingrained in that culture. I, I, you know, I've worked out at gyms where there's a lot of muscle heads and you hear stuff and you see stuff kind of being, you know, sold occasionally. But, you know, unless you're ingrained in that culture, it's, it's hard to be an expert unless you're some kind of chemist or some kind of savant and you just study this stuff cover to cover. But there's a lot I don't know about it, and I'm wondering if we have some experts out there listening to this show that can talk about whether or not there is a potential hole in the waiver there for USADA in their program and whether or not you can reverse engineer a tainted supplement defense. Let me ask you, what's your thoughts on uh, Mark Hunt asking for the two, for Brock's $2.5 million purse? Well, if you follow my Twitter timeline, Jason, and I know you I, do. I do. That's why I brought I mean, this up. <laughs> I think everyone knows. I, I think it's ridiculous. I, I think, obviously, legally, you, you can't argue that he has no right to it. Morally, yeah, I guess you could you could make an argument. In my opinion, he does not have a moral argument. That's my perspective because Brock's pay is Brock's pay. If it was a win bonus that was it that was you know held over his head that you know that that uh, Mark Hunt you know failed to achieve his win bonus because he fought a, an opponent that was using illegal performance enhancing drugs, I would say yeah, Mark Hunt has a moral right there. He has a moral argument to say that hey, I could have beat him in a straight up fight. I lost out, you know, tangible money because of this. I want my win bonus. That makes sense to me. But Brock Lesnar's money is Brock Lesnar's money. 
That $2.5 million that he was reportedly paid, that's already in his account in all likelihood. Mm-hmm. I would guess, because it's Nevada, that there's probably a direct deposit uh, made. In certain states, you, ha- you can't pay direct t- deposit. You actually have to write a check out, and that check has to be handed over to the commission, and then the commission turns it over to the fighter. But I think Nevada is not one of those states where you have to pre- uh, write the checks and give them to the possession of the commission. And my assumption is that if given the option, Brock Lesnar's camp would want that direct deposited right straight into his account and not uh, handed a check for $2.5 million in the night of the fight. So even if he was handed a check for $2.5 million the night of the fight, someone from his camp is going to a branch of his bank in the Las Vegas area and depositing that money, You know, if not that night, the very next day. So that money is in his account. So Mark Hunt is going to go into his account and, and, and command that money. The UFC can't get that money for him. What, what's Mark Hunt going to do? I mean, Brock Lesnar was paid to show up. He was paid to sell pay-per-views, do interviews, sell tickets. He did his job. He, the UFC made money off of him. That, you know, is the UFC going to forfeit the money they made off of Brock Lesnar? The answer is no. Well, and and also, I mean, you know, we live in a country that you're innocent until proven guilty. You know, Brock Lesnar has that right to appeal. So, I mean, this is why, you know, this is why like myself or anyone else in the media, when we do these headlines in terms of, you know, when there's a situation, you'll notice that there's two words that we all use. It's one of two words. We either use flagged or potential. Now, firstly, for me, I always use the word potential. It's a potential anti-doping policy violation because, you know, Brock obviously, you know, can fight this and, and come with, you know, if he can prove his case of why, you know, this was, you know, he was not on a banned substance. But I'll also say this. I mean, at the end of the day, as a fighter, it's your responsibility to know what is on the banned list. And, and that rumor about it possibly be, possibly being an asthma medication, if that is true, that is ridiculous. Because you've talked about it at the outset of this program, Jason. It's your responsibility to know. You have to, especially when you're making $2.5 million and you're Brock Lesnar and you have a lot of money at stake, at stake on your reputation to potentially put all of that in jeopardy over asthma medication. And I think it's common knowledge that asthma medication has steroids in it. So the moment you take that, you've got to know <laughs> That you've possibly crossed a line there, and you've either got to self-report that, or you got to get in front of the story. You can't just take the asthma medication and, and, and hope nothing happens. Sam, you're a WWE fan. I mean, come on. Like, it, it just—I mean, look. Everyone th- considered their wellness policy a joke already. How do you? How do they let Brock perform next month? I remember the signature pharmacy controversy if i remember that correctly i think you know kurt angle's name was on it a couple other athletes from the wwe their names were on it basically none of them tested positive but some names were released were leaked out to the media with regards to athletes that were receiving steroids or performance enhancing drugs in the mail from this so on this quote-unquote pharmacy i believe it was called signature pharmacy and i think based on just the names being released the WWE, per their wellness policy, had the ability to implement a penalty. So if they could implement a penalty based on names being leaked to the media that appeared on a list, you would think that a, one of their athletes actually testing positive by a recognized third party that 
their whole core business is based around testing professional athletes for the use of performance enhancing drugs. You would think that would be, you know, enough to at least suspend him indefinitely, give him a temporary administrative suspension until more details come out. The fact that they have not acted on this information on this report and really issued a, a, a joke of a statement, it does call into question the legitimacy of their wellness policy. Yeah. I mean, it's just, I was sitting having a having a lunch meeting on Sunday. Yes, Sam, I do work on Sundays. There is there essentially seems to be no day off for me. Um, but uh, it, we were talking about it, and it's just you look at what's going on with the WWE with, with Roman Reigns, what's going on with him now with this situation with Brock Lesnar. You you got to kind of wonder. And their statement it it was a it was just a complete joke of a statement. But you know, one of the questions that we got for uh, the, the podcast this week was uh, this was from. Um, John Barnes at Joe Bar 68. He goes, what good is a failed drug test after the fight happens? Please help me understand. Makes no sense. Hashtag fighter safety. And, you know, John, I, I've wrote about this. Um, you know, we, we've talked about it definitely at, at some point throughout the, the time of us doing the podcast. By the way, episode 100 podcast coming up here, Sam. But, uh, you know, if you're not going to expedite a drug test result, the, the number I have always been told is that it will take somewhere between 10 and 14 business days. If you expedite that result, you know, I the number I'm told, five to seven business days. Now, look, it does cost more money to expedite those results. I wrote an article about this right after the John Jones situation where I said that, you know, when, when you're talking about main event fights, you, you have to expedite drug test results, you know, because, you know, I mean, the UFC and when Lorenzo Fertitta announced this this policy, he, he flat out said that, look, this is going to get worse before it gets better. And, you know, we're going to lose big fights. And obviously, uh, you know, UFC 200, they, they lost one, one of the biggest fights they can have. But, you know, I think this is just a, a, another case where, you know, maybe there needs to be a thing if you're in the main event or co-main event of a fight card that drug test results have to be expedited. I mean, because without expediting those results, there's no guarantee those test results will be backed by fight night. When I've gotten to my little Twitter debate over the weekend regarding Brock Lesnar and Mark Hunt and all those comments, there was a tweet that I got from someone with the account Snarky Ginger. And basically she stated that, you know, the time frame in which they received the Lesnar results it's basically consistent with what it takes for all the other tests. So, you know, correct. Yes. No, what that, but that they're not expediting those drug tests. Right. Results. But, I mean, but you look at it, it's about three weeks, but that being said, it still looks to, to the, to the end, to the, to the layman out there that the release of the news still looks dubious. The timing just looks dubious. And if USADA is concerned about their reputation and building a, a strong brand, a brand that's really respected and trusted, they might want to start investing in these five to seven day, you know, turnarounds for, for that last test for the main eventers and co-main eventers, because to get the results out after it, like I said, it looks dubious, whether it's do actually dubious or not. The, the appearance is, is not the best. Sam, could you imagine if they would, if, if they would expedited the drug test results for Jones and Brock? Oh my God. And both it, of them were off that pay-per-view. Well, Misha Tate would have headlined. Well, wait, she headlined anyway. 
But, I mean, could you imagine how many pay-per-view buys they would have lost? I mean, because let's be honest about it. I mean, how many people were, were like myself that were, you know, watching these fights with, with friends, and then the Brock Lesnar fight ends, and boom, three-quarters of the place leaves. Yeah. No, I mean, look, you're right. You're, I mean, in all seriousness, that would have been a death blow, and that's why the timing is it's it makes me feel a little uneasy. I know that's the standard turnaround, but it just doesn't look good. It just doesn't look good. And I think, you know, we've been pretty pretty pro Usada, especially the last couple of months. And I, I still hey. am pro Usada, but the, but there's still some kinks that need to be worked out and I think this is one of them. Yeah, I mean, look, when this when this program came in, I was someone that I pointed out a lot of the things that I looked at it and said, man, there, there's some some very questionable things that were going on here. But as this has gone on, I've sat there and said, you know, at the end of the day, this is what's best for the sport. This is cleaning up the sport. And But I, I still think that, you know, look, is there things that are going to go on that they have to get better with? I mean, it also should be noted, because I know some other people have brought this up, that, you know, right now there's, you know, there's a lot of drug tests that are being set, sent to WADA accredited labs because of the Summer Olympics that are, that is you know starting up here in what you know two weeks Sam two two and a half weeks is when it starts up in Rio so you know maybe the turnaround is not as as fast as it typically would be but you know if you're the UFC you why would you not say hey let's get these drug test results expedited so if a situation like what happened with John Jones happens you know we can you know plan out I mean. You know, let's be honest about it. If they would have had a you know an additional week or two to find a new opponent for Daniel Cormier, they probably would still have Daniel Cormier defending you know the, the UFC light heavyweight title instead of having a non-title fight where Cormier's brand I thought took a hit. Yeah, and putting Anderson Silva, yes, it's great name recognition value, but you don't do your brand any favors at the end of the day by bringing in a very old Anderson Silva who, by his own admission, had really not been training in the months leading up. Had you had more time, you could have put Daniel Cormier in a much more meaningful fight, and I think in a much more meaningful fight, Daniel Cormier fights a different style, and everyone is much more pleased and comes away with a better feeling about the performance of Daniel Cormier. Oh, you could have moved in the UFC 201 because that fight card needs some needs some quality pay per view fights. <laughs> yeah. Oh man, I, I I was talking to a buddy of mine. He goes, he goes, please tell me why I should spend sixty bucks on UFC 201. I go, I can't tell you. I go, unless you want to watch Robbie Lawler and Tyrell Woodley for essentially sixty dollars. I go, that's gonna be a great fight. I'm excited about that by that fight, but that's not a sixty dollar fight. Well, it, well, the problem becomes if you're the UFC is I paid sixty dollars for UFC 200. And you expect me to pay the same price for UFC 201? There should have been a deal where if you buy UFC 200, 202, and 203, if you pre-buy those three, you get 201 for free. Yeah, it's, I'm telling you, UFC 203, that's going to be interesting to see what, what CM Punk can draw. That, that to me, is going to be interesting. I think if this fight had been a year ago with CM Punk, it would have drawn pretty well. But he's been out of the public eye for so long. I think the novelty sort of is worn off. And I think some of the rumors out there about his how training has gone for him, some of the negative stuff that's out there. It's almost like a movie that comes out and it gets negative free preview reviews before it gets released to the public. You start to hear that buzz from some of the film critics that see it. Uh, you know, they go to those special uh, early previews, those early screenings, and you hear the negative reviews, and that kind of takes away some of your enthusiasm for the fight. 
I mean, for the movie, I'm kind of wondering if some of that negative stuff that's been out there for so long now has maybe t- taken some of the enthusiasm out of people wanting to see CM Punk. Because in my mind, he is going to lose that fight and he's going to lose badly. And if you believe oh, yeah. that, why are you going to spend 60 bucks for a fight that you think is going to last maybe uh, 90 seconds and you're convinced you already know the outcome? <laughs> Let me ask you this. With everything that has happened over the last you know week and a half with John Jones and Brock Lesnar, what do you think Ari Emanuel is thinking right now? <laughs> that maybe he shouldn't have paid 16 times the actual earnings uh, for the UFC? Yeah, here and you know, I know we we were talking about that before we started recording, and I thought I'd mention another tweet to you that I saw from Adam Swift saying this: UFC's valuation built on projected four billion US TV rights deal, four hundred million times ten years, but media companies pass on owning it outright for four point two billion. Well, Fox was in the bidding from what I heard, and they're, they're, they maxed out at $2 million. And there was a rumor that I'd heard about three to four weeks ago, I think, that even Disney and ESPN got involved in, in, in the bidding. And I only got that from one source. I couldn't get it confirmed by anyone, but that's pretty interesting. But if you think the TV deal is worth $4 billion and you're willing to pay $4 billion for – the rights to televise the UFC, don't you kind of jump into the bidding? And if you're Fox and if it's true that Disney was involved, don't you go pretty high and go late into the game to get close to that magic 4 million plateau? Because you're saving your, you might be saving yourself some money at the end of the day. Yeah, I mean, you know, the question is when, they, when that deal comes up, I think more of the question is, is, is ESPN going to throw the type of money out there that you know they expect that that ESPN is going to throw out there, and of course, you know we we've constantly talked about the the effect of cord cutters and and you know and what's going on just just in the industry. I mean, you look at you know a lot of these cable companies. I mean, ESPN is now looking at a standalone service where you can just sit there, you know, and pay a monthly fee for for the Watch ESPN app if you wanted to. I mean, you know, more and more of these companies are are going that route. I mean, I, I've even heard where. Uh, potentially as early as next season that there you know if you want to buy the MLB package that your local team would not be blacked out and I'm t- that is that is huge huge. That's huge huge I mean if you tell me that I could sit there and and look uh you know we we you know I'm a fan of the Tampa Bay Rays you tell me that I don't have to have cable service and I can you know purchase a streaming service where I can watch every Tampa Bay Rays game man that 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 definitely goes into a decision if I want to cut the cord yeah, because you're getting Bucks games for free, essentially. I mean, the NFL, for the most part, is on free over-the-air network. All you need is rabbit ears to watch You know, your home hometown team the vast majority of the time. Even the games that are on cable, they're still simulcast on a local station, te- uh, usually. Correct. So yes. if you can get your baseball and your football, it's, it's game over. Yeah, I mean, it's uh, Sam, by the way, we're three weeks out from the start of preseason. Getting closer and closer. Training camps start next week. <laughs> it's great. Hey, hey, uh, the hall, that means the hall. The Hall of Fame game is what next week. Uh, hall of Fame game is uh, August. Uh, well, August seventh. That's okay. Sunday. Yeah, because uh, I had I had to I had to uh, your your hometown of Philadelphia on uh, August the tenth, and uh, we we play our first uh, preseason game on the eleventh. 
It's Pre-season already here. Football. Can't wait. Can't it, wait for all the third and fourth stringers. And, I, I, it's, and it's crazy, Jason. I did watch summer league basketball, but I've got to draw the line watching third and fourth quarter NFL preseason, <laughs> especially that fourth preseason game. Why do they even have the fourth preseason game? Uh, I mean, look, I mean, you you really look at it and as someone who has you know, been around you know, broadcasting NFL games now for, for a decade, I mean, literally, usually you go into that final game where, you know, there's there's really maybe four or five jobs maybe still on the line. I, see, I don't even buy that. That's what the media says. When you tune into the game, that's the storyline. In my experience, at least with the Eagles, if, if someone was on the bubble, they've already – and, you know, if they're playing in the, by the fourth game, that if they're not being held out, it means that they're, they didn't have a good preseason. They didn't have a good enough preseason to make the roster. Sam, well, I'm going to tell you this. When I come to Philly, I'm just going to have to show you my flip card of all the players that are listening on this. I'm trying to figure out who they are. <sighs> yeah, because you get those weird uniform numbers. Yeah, it's uh, you, get, you know, get the wide receivers wearing like number like the numbers that the linebackers wear. I remember we a couple years ago we had two two wide receivers. One wore 17 and one wore 19. And sometimes it, it was difficult. You're, you, had, you had the binoculars out, you, you, you know, and, and usually as the season went on, I, I learned that one of them wore their socks a certain way, so I knew which one it was from the, from the press box. We're really getting off track here. we, we got to get we, back to MMA. We are, you know, but, uh, you know, I'm, I'm looking forward to it. I'll be up there in Philadelphia. Hopefully it's not, uh, you know, 100 degrees like it seems to be everywhere else on, around the country, Sam. It's been hot out here. Yeah, but, you know, in, in terms of, of the the – What's going on with Jones and Brock? We got this this question, and this was uh, from at WWE Big Show fan. He said, US, U, UFC Madison Square Garden is quickly approaching. Jones and Brock likely out. Edgar off a loss. Rousey looks in no shape to fight. And Wyman is injury prone. Who can headline? I saw that question. That is a great question. And if you're Dana White, you're probably freaking out right about now. I would think that they're going to probably tr- maybe try to get Ronda to come back earlier than she wants, but that's far from a given. You know, I think that ultimately what they're going to have to do, they're going to have to go back on Dana White's word that Connor was out for MSG. I think with Dana, you know, with, with Brock being, you know, suspended here, and it wasn't a given that Brock was going to do a second fight, but he said he had a lot of fun, and it looked like that that would be an option for them if they wanted it. You look at, you know, John Jones, there was some talk that maybe John Jones would be on that show. But even if he gets six months, he it still would put him past that, that fight right, card. Right. So I think you gotta you gotta get Conor McGregor on that show. I mean, what what's the exact date of the MSG card in comparison to the fight against the, the rematch against Diaz? Uh it'll be uh see McGregor Diaz is August twentieth, and that fight card is November the twelfth. So that's that's a feasible turnaround. If he doesn't sustain a serious injury, win or lose, conceivably he could return for that. You know, the the fight that I would do, and I've spent some time thinking about it today. You know, what should the first main event for the first major MSG show for the UFC be? And I think I would do Conor McGregor versus Eddie Alvarez for the 155 title. And and here's why: I think Conor McGregor is a draw anywhere he goes, and I think Eddie Alvarez can draw in New York. You know, I've done shows with him in Boston and and all over the country. And the same chants that you would hear when Eddie would fight in Jersey and Philly, you would you he would you would hear a lot of those chants in in places nowhere near Philadelphia. I mean, the the reports were that there was an Eddie Alvarez chant in Vegas when he fought 
Dos Anjos. And Philadelphia, geographically, is very close to New York. It's a short train ride up. If you take Amtrak, you just go from 30th Street Station straight up to you know Penn Station. And MSG is literally at the doorsteps of yep. Penn Station. Uh, if you don't have a lot of money, then you can also take New Jersey Transit, and that takes you into Penn Station as well. So it's very easy for Philadelphia fans, for Eddie Alvarez fans, to get to New York. So... I, you know, I, that's a fight that I would do because I think that there would be a lot of heat for it. I think it would sell a lot of tickets. And I think Conor McGregor going for a second world title in a different weight class other than 145, I think that can sell even coming off a potential loss to Nate Diaz. Yeah, you know, I, I think it, and I noticed this, and I don't know if you saw this, the UFC 202 tickets went on sale last week and the prices came out and. You know, I think a lot of fans were kind of floored by the fact of it's two hundred and fifteen dollars just just for the cheap ticket to get into the building and people are now starting to wonder with guys like Conor McGregor, are we getting at, you know, Super Bowl type prices where it's gonna start pricing out the common fan and you know, to me you know, with them going into the T Mobile arena, I mean, you know, a much bigger arena than uh the MGM Grand Garden Arena, it's gonna be interesting to see how many tickets they can sell at those prices. One th- well, there's a lot of things that hurt boxing, but one thing that I really feel like hurt boxing early in the years, early years ago, uh, early on when it was making its its decline, was that it priced itself out of the market for its core fan. Buying a ticket to a boxing event just became cost prohibitive, and you you couldn't necessarily watch the big fights on free TV because everything was going to premium cable and pay per view, and boxing wasn't very accessible to the, 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 the average working man and woman. Yeah. And MMA is kind of going down that path. It's been going down, down that path subtly now for the past several years, but I feel like it's maybe kind of reached a threshold and it's kind of gone over the tipping point. And, and you know, ticket sales are still great in certain markets, but there's certain markets where the events are far from from a sellout. When, when the, you know, the UFC hasn't been to Philadelphia in quite some time, and the last time they were here – I was offered a stack of 40 tickets, free tickets. You know, they, they wanted, the, the person that offered me these tickets wanted me to take the tickets and, you know, take my friends and family with me and then make sure that every other ticket that I couldn't use was given to someone that could attend. I mean, basically that was an indirect way for the UFC to paper the house. And that's because Philadelphia is a blue, uh, blue, blue collar town. Uh, as there are many, you know, towns in this country that are very blue collar. Of course, you have yeah. your upper echelon, you have your upper class, but there's a big middle class in many markets around this country, and middle class people cannot afford two hundred fifty dollars a ticket. No, they, I mean, can't. I mean, I, I and me and my buddy were talking about this. If that UFC two hundred one card was a, a quality card, I mean, for me to get to Atlanta, it's about a seven hour drive. I would if that was a quality card. I would consider taking that seven hour drive to see some quality MMA. But there's there's just not enough depth. They they, they no. kind of spread themselves too thin. But that kind of goes back to the UFC. You know the feeling that the UFC could get maybe a ten year four hundred million dollar per year television deal. They're only getting about a hundred million now. Do you really think that they could they could pull that off and go no. from 100 million to 400 million? That that's the thing. You know, on the surface, my instant reaction, my knee jerk reaction, the hot take is no. But let's remember, it's Ariel Manuel. But I mean, here's the thing: if you're telling me, you know, like 
when I look at the UFC they, on but, Fox, but, listen, we're, ta- we're I'm sorry to cut you off, but my point here is: you look at UFC 201, this Lawler versus Woodley fight. Do they cut back on pay per views, and do we start seeing fight cards like UFC 201? Does that shift to TV? Is that how they get to 400 million? Do yeah, they I mean, reduce yeah. the number of pay per views, and do we see more big fights? on Fox, Fox Sports 1, and even Fox Sports 2. Well, I think the problem that right now the – the and I've really noticed this with, you know, the Fox cards. I've You know, when they started doing these Fox cards, the, the, you, know, and, you know, for the first, you know, couple of them, it, there was something that was special about them. Like, you look at the lineup on Saturday, okay, sign me up for Edson Barboza, Gilbert Melendez. I think that's going to be a great fight. But outside of that – that's not a, a special card. You look at UFC 201, take the title fight away from it. That's a fight night card, folks. I'm sorry. It's, that's a fight night card. You know, and, and I, look, I would love to see the UFC go down to, say, 8 to 10 pay-per-views a year as opposed to 12 to, to 14 pay-per-views a year and, and, and basically give you a value for that dollar. But if you're a television executive and you're looking at the fights that you know, they're putting on Fox and FS1. Are you ready to pay $400 million a year for that? Well, if the UFC go, cuts down, let's say they cut down to eight pay-per-views a year. And let's say that for those eight pay-per-views, they decide to raise the price of pay-per-view to $80 a pay-per-view. And now they've got a lot more depth and more shows that they can sell to the networks that they can also put on Fight Pass. If they're improving the product by that much significantly – is that, you know, do you, I, I think they can command definitely a significant increase over what they're making now. Whether or not they can go four times of what they're earning now in, in far as far rights fees, that remains to be seen. But you've got to think if they cut back, they bulk up these shows, they offer a stronger and better package to the networks. A skilled negotiator like Ariel Manuel, he might be able to pull it off. Because let's remember, the, 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 the word was that when the UFC was on spike, their, the final year, I think they got somewhere between 25 to $30 million for that final year. And when they, the UFC, from what I was told, they told Spike, you know, before it hit the open market and they, they were free to negotiate with, with uh, other parties, when they were trying to just extend the existing deal they had with Spike, they told, from what I was told, they told Spike they wanted $100 million a year. And I was told that Spike laughed at them. But that's essentially what they ended up getting. So if they can go from 25 to 30 to about 100 million a year, and maybe it's, it was a little, maybe it's a little less. You know, sometimes you hear it's 90, 95. It's not truly 100, but it still was a significant increase, at least three times. If they can do that, if Ario Manuel was able to orchestrate that, who knows what he can orchestrate now? Yeah, I mean, it's possible. I mean, I, you know, it, on the surface, like I said, my knee-jerk reaction is to say no. But the more I think about it, the more I think that the reason why they were willing to pay so much and pay a premium to own the UFC, they have to be confident in the fact that there are definitely revenue streams out there that they feel have not been exploited, that they can take advantage of, and ultimately make the company worth even more than what they already paid for it. By the way, can we also stop this uh, where people think uh, fighter pay is going to go up? Can, <laughs> can, we please, can we please yeah. stop this, this right. conversation? Well, you know, th- there's a lot of people on Twitter, media members that I respect, but when they make the argument that fighters are underpaid based on what the UFC sold for, that's not how it works. 
you know, you look at the traditional valuation, you know, if you go to business school, they teach you, you know, when, in, in how to acquire a company and it's a valuation, it's a multiple that's applied to actual earnings of the company. And like I've said on this broadcast before, it's usually in that seven to a multiple of seven or eight. That's what companies use, buttoned up companies use. What we have now is, you know, IMG, uh, IMG and WME, they paid 16 times. Not, it was a multiple of 16, not a multiple of seven or eight, but 16. So they overpaid. Just because someone overpaid based on the earnings doesn't necessarily mean that there's this abundance of money in the coffers that exist to pay fighters. It, you know, if someone's willing to overpay for something, it doesn't mean the, the employees, the staff, should make more. The, what, what, what determines whether or not the employee should make more typically is what the company's actually earning. They're paying above the, the, the multiple when it comes to earnings. So if you want to make the argument that, hey, uh, you know, according to our numbers and research, the U- UFC is only paying 20% of their, you know, uh, earnings to, to, to the, to the, uh, uh, committing it to fighter payroll when other sports are anywhere between 40 to 52%. That's a legitimate argument. You can make that argument. There's other arguments that you can make to suggest that the UFC fighters are underpaid, but to use what the UFC was acquired for when it's considered to be an overpayment based on traditional valuation practices. That argument doesn't hold up, at least not in my mind. I'll tell you, one of the things that I'm really paying attention to, and you mentioned this on the show last week, is the fighters that are in the UFC currently that are managed by CAA, what is that relationship going to be like when when WME IMG officially takes over? You know, TJ Dillashaw had some comments. I mean, you know, look, and, and I'll say this for any fighter that goes out there and, you know, whether it's in an interview or whether it's sending off a tweet or a Facebook post, you know, that's all fine and dandy. But what else are you doing to address fighter pay? If you, you know, just sending off a tweet's not enough. Ultimately, you know what? If you don't like what you're being paid, you know what? When your contract comes up, don't sit there and take what the UFC is offering. You know, you know, see what else, everyone else is offering. I mean, you know, look at what I mean. Roy McDonald is doing right now, which I did find interesting that uh, Scott Coker, following uh, Saturday's Bellator one fifty eight, didn't exactly come off as someone that thought negotiations were going very well. With uh, with who? Roy McDonald. Well, here's why I don't think negotiations negotiations are going well. There was a story out last week that got leaked that. Bellator was talking to Roy McDonald. And if you're Bellator, you don't put that information out there. You don't want the UFC to know what you're doing. My thinking is that information was probably put out by the Roy McDonald camp of to course. maybe get a higher off. Well, if they're putting that out there, that says to me that they're not truly sincere about signing with Bellator. They're just using Bellator to get a better offer from the UFC so they can stay with the UFC. I mean, we've seen that tactic used by agents in all the mainstream sports. <laughs> That's Agent 101. Right. So the fact that it got out there suggests to me that that it was put out there by Rory McDonald's management. It suggests to me that their heart is to resign with the UFC at the terms that they, that they want to get and that they probably believe that they'll get what they want. I'll tell you, Sam, but there is part of me that would love to see Roy McDonald in one championship fighting Ben Askren. I, I don't think they, you know, Ben Askren's paid very well by one, one, F, uh, one championship, but I don't think they can pay Rory McDonald money. I mean, look, if Ben Henderson's getting 275, if Dan Henderson is over 700,000, if Mark Hunt is 700,000, where does that put Rory McDonald? 
it doesn't put him at five hundred thousand. Doesn't put him at seven hundred thousand. But it's got to put him. At least at what Ben Henderson's making, at least 250, 275, I, I, if not more. You could make a case that Rory McDonald probably should make, you know, based on some of these numbers that have come out recently, should probably make, be making 350 flat per fight. I, I was thinking for Bellator, it, it's probably for Rory probably to even consider it. I got to imagine it's got to be at least 300,000 a fight. It's, it's got Guaranteed 300,000. It, it's got to. But I want to backtrack a little bit because you mentioned a very good point. You know, CAA athletes are represented in the UFC. IMG, WME, Ariel Manuel, they represent Ronda Rousey. And so far, we have not, you know, we, we've just seen a press release announcing that, you know, WME and IMG are working on closing the acquisition of the UFC. We haven't heard anything yet that addresses whether or not they're going to renounce the management rights to Ronda Rousey. And if that thing, once the deal is 100% finalized, the transactions completed, settlements made, and WME, IMG, they own, they have the physical shares of the UFC. They physically own it. And if they don't come out within, I'd say, two to three weeks, renouncing their rights to Ronda Rousey, what do you think that means as far as their plans with regard to management in the fight game? You, I talked to managers, Jason. I know you talk to managers. Do you get a sense of, what the temperature is like right now. Are managers even paying attention to this possibility? Uh, or is it something that they're just kind of oblivious to right now? Oh, no. I think managers are clearly paying attention to this. And some indications I've gotten, it doesn't sound like WME is, is getting out of the management business in terms of MMA fires, which I will say this. I did some uh, research uh, last Wednesday night during the UFC event. I found out who's running against uh, Representative Mark Wayne Mullen. I have a feeling that... Uh, he might become best friends with Ari Emanuel soon. <laughs> yeah, I, 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 I would, I would imagine that. Now, you know, and everyone's going to say, "Well, what about the Ali Act? What about the Ali Act?" Well, if Ari Emanuel doesn't want it, and they do want to increase their portfolio of UFC fighters when it comes to their man- management agency, it's going to be real tough for Senator Mar- uh, for Congressman Mark Wayne Mullen to, to get this uh, bill to, uh, to pass. It was going to be tough enough with just the Fertitas and Dana. Uh, but now you've got an even higher level opponent now in Ari Emanuel. And here's another thing to mention with CAA. They represent George St. Pierre. Yep. And so, that- you know, I mean, that would be another guy you could potentially put at UFC 205 as well in New York. Potentially, you know, GSP coming back to, you know, fight whoever. But, uh, I mean, you know, Sam, it's it's going to be interesting to kind of see how it plays out with CAA clients and the new ownership of the UFC. Here's my last word on this. First, if you are a manager and you manage UFC fighters, you should try to do whatever you can to get in touch with WME and IMG. Try to find out what's going on, and if it looks like they're going to stay in the management game, you should try to sell your agency and politic and position yourself for a job within their company. Because if they do decide to manage more fighters to increase their portfolio of clients that they also promote in the UFC, if they want to do the promoter management thing, they're going to need some help, and you'd be sitting pretty if you were one of those guys that were tasked to help them. The last word I'm going to say on this, you know, part two of it, is if Either they're going to manage zero fighters that they promote or they're going to try to manage all of them. It's not going to, they're not just going to stay in the Ronda Rousey game and say, that's it. Either they're going to say, you know what? This is a gray area. It could provide some legal liability issues. We're going to renounce Ronda Rousey and get completely out of the management game. 
Uh, we're going to get you know clear ourselves of all liability. We're just going to promote. Either they're going to do that. Either it's going to be zero, or it's going to be all. They're going to gun gun for all of it. It's not just going to be a couple fighters here and there. Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see here. But of course, uh, you know, this past weekend, Bellator one fifty eight. Uh, you know, uh, well, you know, heading into the show, you know, before the fight card happened, one of the big things I wanted to talk about was a tape delay. But obviously. The story of the fight card is what happened with Michael Page and Cyborg Santos. Uh, you know, and, you know, people come to this podcast, they want to hear a different aspect of this. And part of the story that I thought you can really offer uh, a unique insight to is when a fighter gets injured during a fight in the insurance claim. Explain to our listeners exactly what happened, Sam. Well, that's going to be very inside baseball, and I will take the listeners through that process in a couple minutes. But I first want to get on my soapbox and say that, yes, I feel horrible for what happened to Cyborg Santos. My thoughts and prayers are, are, are there with him. But that Instagram post that went out, kind of pandering for money, that, that starting that GoFundMe account, well, that, just uh, hours. Let me give you a little update on that because this is actually a, has just come out as a recording. Uh, you know, Cyborg has done an interview with uh, MMAJunkie.com where he says this, quote, Chris is crazy. People exaggerate. I'm fine. I'm at my hotel. I'm feeling fine. I chose not to go to the hospital in London. I opted to have surgery in Houston. I'm fine. Nothing happened. I wasn't knocked out. I only felt the pain from the fracture. At no time did I have any symptoms uh, like dizziness. I It wasn't a knockout. It was a fracture. It didn't affect my brain. Everything's okay. People are crazy. I don't need anything. At no time did Bellator refuse to help me. The good side is that now I'll make justice to my nickname of Cyborg. I'll be back in six months. Nothing happened to me. I'm whole 100%. At no time did I lose consciousness. I've been knocked down by strikes before. I know what that feels like. This was simply a matter of pain from the fracture. Nothing has was affected as far as my brain, and now my head will be harder than ever. I'll be a cyborg, literally. Thanks for everyone's concern. In a quote, and he is when he spoke to MMA Junkie, he was saying that it was his ex-wife who started the GoFundMe page, which, by the way... Her initial Instagram post had a, a little comment about Bellator that ended up being edited out. And I thought that that was a huge disservice to Bellator. I think that she really did Bellator dirty. I think it was wrong because, you know, and in reading Scott Coker's you know response, he should have came out even stronger because it, it made it seem like they were doing this in response to some of the bad press and some of the criticism that they were getting. This wasn't a after-the-fact decision to cover his medical bills. His medical bills were always going to be covered. This is not something that, the, that Bellator just decided to do out of the kindness of their hearts. They have this level of coverage and protection for all their fighters. Any injury that happens in their cage is covered under their comprehensive fighter insurance policy. doesn't necessarily cover what happens to you outside of the cage, but if you're injured inside the cage in a Bellator cage, you are going to be taken care of. So for, uh, and that's what I would have said if I was Scott Coker and I was in that position, I would say that, yeah, he's, we're going to cover the medical costs, but they were always going to be covered. This is not something we, you know, just, this is not just something, you know, I've got to make it clear. And I don't think he did a good enough job making it clear. It, this is something that was never in question. And, you know, Cyborg Santos, you know, why the ex, his, the ex-wife of, of Cyborg is able to go out and do this and start this GoFundMe page, you know, without his own consent, 
She's not his legal wife anymore. That to me is, is borderline fraudulent. Where if somebody did uh, feel bad and, and she tugged on their heartstrings and they did rush out and they donated to this GoFundMe page, where's that money going to? Because he's come out and said that he doesn't need it right now. So who gets that money? Yeah, I mean, one of the things that I, I mean, I, no, but, but is that not a scam? Yeah, you know, one of the things that, and I know people jumped on the whole financial part of it, and why I never want to comment on that stuff, Sam, is unless you know the fighter's financial situation, it, it's just not fair to comment on on the medical on the the financial side of it because but, we don't know what his his financial situation is. We, we don't know, but the thing is, though. He's a professional fighter. Even if he had come out of there unscathed, he's probably not going to fight for up to three months anyway. So let's just say he can't fight again. Having a fractured skull, as serious as that is, as potentially life-threatening as it is, he's out of the clear for the most part. Maybe he can't fight again, but there's no reason why he can't hold a regular job like a normal person would. Yeah. That, that, that fracture will heal. And he will be fine. And to be honest with you, Jason, I'm not an expert on this per se, but I think it's very likely that if he wants to fight again, he will be able to fight again. If it was a subdural hematoma, if it was something that was an internal brain injury, absolutely. He would have a very tough time getting licensed by a commission again. But as long as he can get medical clearance and long as that he can show that, you know, despite the fracture, as long as that it's healed properly and fully and he's not susceptible, more susceptible to another fracture than he normally would be. He's going to get licensed to fight again. So, and he actually, you, you'd be surprised if this heals properly, you would be surprised how soon he might be able to fight. As serious of an injury as, as it is, as bad as it could have been, you know, he, he is okay. And, you know, if he, if he heals properly, he's going to be back much sooner than anyone realizes. So, and, and here's the thing, a fractured skull, you know, maybe it would take him out of the running of certain high risk jobs. I don't think he could maybe work, you know, in a quarry or, or work in a mine or anything where he would need a hard hat to protect his skull, but there's no reason why he couldn't get a regular day-to-day job like the, like the rest of us have to maintain. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I, I want to hear a doctor come out and, and kind of say uh, of when and if he can, you know, return to, to the cage here. Um, but you know, it's, it's one of those things of because of knowing what happened and, and what the, the injury happened to cyborg, I just, I don't like watching that highlight clip anymore, Sam. I mean, we know this is a, this is a fight game and guys get hurt. But, man, I, I really have a tough time watching that clip now. Yeah, and I really like Michael Page, and I understand where he's coming from with that celebration that he had planned, and part of me appreciates it as someone who's promoted fights and someone who's a Michael Page fan, and granted, he did not know the extent of Cyborg's injury and how bad he had actually hurt him. The guy was still face down. You know, it still looked bad. You don't necessarily celebrate when the guy's face down like that. My only problem with his celebration is rolling the, the Pokemon ball at him. That That's the only part. I mean, if you want to sit yeah. in, the, in the center of the cage and celebrate and, you know, jump up and all that, fine. I, I just, the only thing I, I had a little bit of problem with is, is throwing the, the Pokemon ball at him. But, you know, I mean, look, he didn't know how hurt he was. I mean. Yeah, but know. still, you he didn't know the full extent, but you could see it. You could see it, yeah. Jason. And, yeah. and and I thought it was creative that he planned that, and it's something that could have gone, vi- you know, that did go viral, and it makes him a bigger star. 
but he should have reversed course and said, you know what, I'm not going to use it now. You know, that would it would have been great had I just got a, a clean knockout, but this guy's hurt. Now's not the time to do this. You know, one of the questions that we got, uh, this comes from at Andy Big Rocks One. He says, a beautiful jumping knee, but then we see the outcome. How does this cha- how, how does this challenge the way you feel about the sport? Uh, I mean, look, at the end of the day, you know, Sam, we both know this is – you know, this is a hurt business. At the end of the day, I mean, you know this this can certainly happen. Um, you know, but I, I don't know if it changed the way I feel about the sport. No, it doesn't change the way I feel about it. it. It's a violent sport. It's a sport predicated on violence, and these things happen. It's not like Michael Page said, I'm going to break this guy's skull. You know, you, you, you can throw that knee a hundred times and not do the damage that he did. Yeah. It just, it's... It's just here, something that happened. Here's what I'll say about here's a narrative of that fight no one is talking about. I was really impressed with Michael Page in the first round. When that fight, you know, I think a lot of us, one of the questions we had with Michael Page was, you know, if he's on his back, how will he do? But how did you score that first round? I would give it to Michael Page. I you, thought you really would? You would. I, I yeah, because I thought he was a guy on the ground that was actually was the guy that was taking, you know, was going for things. I, I just didn't think that, you know, Cyborg, I mean, look, striking was clearly Michael Page in the opening round, you know, with the effective striking. And, you know, he had the submission tips on the ground. I would probably, I would have no problem he scored 10-9 for Cyborg, but I thought there were a lot of questions that were answered about Michael Page. Boy, I thought I was a big Michael Page fan. You must be even bigger to give him that round. I gave it to 10-9 to Cyborg. And I think, you know, I had some concerns about that matchmaking going in, but I think based on the way that Cyborg fought in that first round and him controlling the top position for as long as he did, I would say that that kind of justified the matchmaking. It was a, a, a on-the-level fight. It definitely w- was a legit matchup. But, yeah, you're right. Michael Page is definitely very good. Uh, you know, he's decent off his back. We thought that that was a major Achilles heel, and he'll be susceptible against wrestlers. He'll probably get taken down pretty easily. But he's not going to be a guy that's necessarily easy to finish on the ground. Yeah. And I think that it, he's such a technical wizard when it comes to his striking. And he's a true martial arts mentality guy. I mean, he came up in the traditional martial arts. And I think a guy with that type of approach to martial arts is going to respect jujitsu. And he's still young enough that if he prepares his ground game and follows jujitsu the same way that he you know, got enveloped in traditional martial arts, striking martial arts, there's no reason to think that this guy is not going to advance and become a high-level jiu-jitsu practitioner. I mean, I think he's got the mentality. He's got the athleticism. He's got the body type. You know, he's not there yet, but he could not only be adequate on the ground, he could be lethal on the ground. I mean, his jiu-jitsu, his, his, his back game and his flexibility, you know, that, that's something that could actually become a threat in the years to come. Yeah, it's going to be interesting to kind of see what they, they do with him. I mean, the Fernando Gonzalez matchup would make a lot of sense, but it was finally nice to see the, you know, getting a step up in competition, which, let's be honest about it, it's something we had not seen. And, you know, and that was uh, one of the questions we got saying, uh, it goes, you know, Michael Page since the Burrell fight just to understand what they were doing with MVPs, uh, you know, competition also saying odd matchmaking for MVP. I mean, you know, it, it's I didn't I didn't agree with the matchmaking. I I wish that he would have progressed in, in terms of the opponents quicker than they have. But this is the way they they've done it, and, and I think ultimately it comes is can can Spike and Bellator make Michael Page where a guy he can be the main event of the fight card and over a million people are watching. That's, yeah, that's prior a question to, mark. 
Prior to the Cyborg matchmaking, I'm right there with you, Jason. I, I thought that some of the opponents that they, they put him in there were a joke, you know, speculating and trying to provide insight for the listeners. You know, the only reason why I could think they were matchmaking him to that, I guess maybe they were deliberately trying to put him in lopsided matchups so that he would get that big highlight real KO. It would go viral and they could make him an even bigger star. But you, you saw Saturday night, they put him in with a, with a higher level guy, a more legitimate guy. And he still was able to give them that high, highlight reel knockout. And it was that much more poignant and that much more relevant because he was able to knock out and take down a guy that was as legit, legitimate as Cyborg. You, you pull that KO, that's flying E against a guy that everyone expected you to, to pull it off against, and it, it doesn't have the same impact. And I think that they need to take some of the training wheels off and, and put Michael Page in there with, with tougher guys. Look, you know, this will sound crazy and some people might laugh at me, but I think you could make a case maybe to put Michael Page in there with Koreshkov for the world title because you've got to think about it. Koreshkov is not a wrestler. His ground game is okay, but you, you've got to think that if Michael Page fights Andre Koreshkov, that that fight primarily is going to be contested on the feet and that Michael Page on the feet, you know, with his range and his quickness, He's going to be able to hold his own against Koreshkov. Koreshkov obviously will have the power and strength advantage, but I think uh, Page will have the the quickness and the agility advantage there. I actually think you could put that fight together, and Michael Page, there's a path to victory there for him. No, I mean, I understand why you would go that route, but I mean, they've, you know, they're going to go Lima and Koreshkov. That's going to be next. I would, on, on that same card, I would put Page and Gonzalez, and basically maybe if something were to happen to Lima where he doesn't get to the fight, then maybe you say, Hey, we're, we're turning to Michael Page for the title fight. A fight that I would like to see for Michael Page, if they go back to the UK within the next 12 months, I would love to see Michael Page, Paul Daly. I'll give you another matchup that I think stylistically would be um, a fan-pleasing fight. Michael Page, Chidi, and Chikwani. That's a beautiful fight. Beautiful fight. You know, but, you know, obviously, but, you know, one of the, the odd decisions that I saw Bellator do on Saturday you know, look, this was a, a tape delay show here in the United States. The, the fight card, the main card, started around 3 o'clock Eastern time, which, of course, uh, aired uh, 9 p.m. Eastern time and Pacific time on Spike. One thing that was really odd about the situation, that it was even on a one-hour tape delay in the U.K., which I thought was kind of interesting. <laughs> That's weird. But but the fact of I don't I did not quite get the decision to release the – I understand that, you know, they used that – that clip to get some press covers that they normally don't get from outlets that don't cover MMA, that are not going to put any type of MMA coverage out there. But I, and I put this tweet out there. I said, if you're in the ages of the 18 to 34, why would you sit there and stay at home on a Saturday night if you've already seen how the Michael Page fight ends? Media is consumed differently now. Everybody's watching on their phones, their iPads. You know, all different kinds of devices. You know, uh, can can you watch live TV with the uh, Apple Watch? I don't have. I don't know. Apple, I, don't, I don't have Apple Watch. <laughs> I could tell you. My, my my point is, you know, people aren't watching on TV that much anymore. They're watching media in a different way, and I think it's time for Spike to update their strategy when it comes to how they show Bellator events that take place in different time zones. They have to treat Bellator like a sports property, not but a reality. They haven't. They've show. never. I mean, it's crazy. They've never really treated MMA like a sports property. No, they haven't. I mean, and you know, I put a tweet out there, you know, asking, "Hey, if you're in the 18 to 34 year old demographic, if you've already seen this highlight video, are you going to sit at home on a Saturday night and watch it?" And 
you know, and, and these are the response I got. You know, uh, you know, this is at Big J in 06. Won't watch it at all. Won't watch unless live. I gamble on the fights if that adds anything. Uh, Nazir MMA, won't watch unless live. Uh, Andy North, I would watch it live in the afternoon. I know how it ends, so I'm not interested. I'll watch EBI 7 instead. Another one, watching boxing on Fox since I saw the KO and can't watch Spike with online streaming anyway. Uh, next one, I have zero interest in watching it live. I'd watch it Sunday morning. I've avoided seeing results so I can watch tonight. Uh, another one saying I'm watching the U.K. stream now. It's only an hour delay. No way I would wait for the U.S. broadcast. Uh, next saying don't need to watch later tonight since I'm catching part of the streams and on Twitter. Uh, next, and uh, and this just usually keeps me from watching Bellator because it's always tape delay here in Seattle, and that was at Bryce J. Murphy. Uh, no one says I'm 35, but no, once I know how it ends, I'm good. I can't, I can't watch it that soon. Uh, also it says I fast forward to the finishes, won't watch decisions unless it's fight of the night. And, uh, you know, and, and those are just the tweets I got, you know, it was just merely for me. I just wanted to know from fans. I mean, if you've already seen that, is there a, a you know, a fascination to go back? I mean, it, it's just, it's one of those decisions that. You know, look, I'm not a TV executive. I can't sit here and say whether it's a good decision or not. But I just thought it was kind of interesting that you would put that out there where it could, you know, limit how many fans might might stay at home on a Saturday night and watch it, uh, you know, when it, when it airs on Spike. And we know that the recent string of Bellator events have not been exactly highly rated. We As we go to tape here, we don't exactly have the data for the ratings, uh, at least the U.S. ratings. I think the U.K. ratings are out there for Channel 5, but we don't have the Spike TV ratings yet as we go to tape here in the U.S., but I couldn't imagine they're going to be overwhelming, overwhelmingly good. The reason for that is because you have a tape delay fight show in the dead of summer, and there's a lot of people on vacation, and it's tape delayed. You know, people have access to the results and some of the highlights. And it's it was a solid card, but it was not a spectacular card. I could imagine that you know the rating for this show is not going to be anything that's going to knock anyone's socks off. I will and, say this: because it, it, when this number comes out, recording this on a Monday evening, the number will come out on Tuesday morning. I know a lot of people are going to compare that number to their live events on on Friday. I will not compare it to that. I will compare their number to their Italy show, which was also on tape delay. Okay. And it was also on a Saturday. But it still airs and it still, you know, it still counts for the record. Oh, no, no question. And I think long term, they could find it tough, tough going when it comes to ratings. And a big reason for that, I've talked to some people again in the TV industry, and they point to Spike TV's placement now on many of the cable distributors. Spike TV used to have premium prime placement. It was right there with TBS and TNT and FX with all the high rated uh, cable networks. And when you did channel surfing, you know, it was right there. But in recent months, it's from what I've been told, it's been relegated on the display packages for a lot of the cable distributors out, distributors out there. And it's not uh, as prominently displayed as it once was. And there's a feeling inside the industry that that, you know, could hurt Bellator in the ratings department going forward. And, and the other question that I have is they kind of went to a freak show format and it was working with Kimbo. It was working with tremendous dividends. And even if Bellator wants to stay in the circus sideshow business, 
even if they want to stay, you know, with that 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 model, do they have the right type of talent to execute that model? Because Kimbo, unfortunately, you know, God rest his soul, is gone. He's not here. Uh, you know, Hoist Gracie is still there, but really, who is a viable opponent for him to fight right now? You know, are you going to stay in the Ken Shamrock business? I, 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 you know, who who is out there that they can put at the top of their shows now in in the vein of Kimbo Slice that can get that level of ratings? That the, the the talent is not out there. It's let's, just not. Let, let's be honest about it. What fighters can they put on a car together that gets? You know, for and and just say just for their fight, not the the card overall, but just for their fight, that can bring a million and a half viewers a spike. I mean, you you can try to do Rampage Tito, you know, you can try to put you know Rampage in in, in a big fight, a much bigger fight than Ishii, but you've only got him for one more fight. Necessarily, yeah. you know, you may not have him past one more fight. There, there, there could be some big problems coming forward for, for Bellator when it comes to the ratings department. That's why, you, you know, if you're, you're Scott Coker, you're, you're, you're really hoping you can get Rory McDonald, and you're hoping maybe you can get a couple other guys to help up, help make up for the loss of Kimbo Slice. Yeah, I mean, you look at, you know, Tito obviously was in London doing, doing some interviews last week and, you know, kind of talking about what, what he, you know, it sounds, like, it sounds like he's only got one more fight left in him. You know, it doesn't seem like there, there's a, a ton of, of fights left in his future. Maybe it's only one. I mean, who knows who they put him up there against? Well, you know, Tito Ortiz, you know, did a recent interview, and he said something that I find hard to believe that I hope is not true. But if it is true, I'm kind of appalled that it's even something that was was offered. But Tito claimed that Scott Coker offered him Ken Shamrock as an opponent. And, you know, Jason, I don't know about you, but I, I have a huge problem with that if that's true. Uh. I I would you know no, I don't want to see that fight no. But but here's the thing from a business perspective, how do you sell that fight? Yes, it would get a a, a solid rating because it's Tito Ortiz and it's Ken Shamrock. But if you're a longtime follower of MMA, the type of fan that would have appreciation of the Shamrock and Ortiz names being on the same marquee, you also know that Ken Shamrock's zero for three against Tito Ortiz. Yeah. Not only zero for three, but got slaughtered. In those three fights, they were they they were one sided. I remember the first time I saw them fight. Ken Shamrock's face looked like hamburger meat after it, and that's when Ken was in his prime. And if you're Viacom, you know you've got to be alarmed at hearing about that possibility because you know Bellator has really towed a a, a a dangerous line here, and they've gotten lucky. They've almost put themselves in a position here where they've been at a point of no return, where something catastrophic has happened in their cage, and the whole company gets shut down. I mean, you look at Dada 5000, you know, whether or not he truly died in the cage that night, we, you know, that could be an exaggeration on his part, but he was in the hospital for about two weeks after that fight and was in serious condition and could have died. You look at Kimbo Slice. Now, there's no, I don't think there's any negligence on the part of Bellator, but he's an older fighter who had just tested positive for steroids. If he had a heart abnormality that kind of, you know, what if that had taken place fight week? What if that? What if he had died? You know, what if that heart abnormality had reached you know ahead during the actual fight, and he had died that way? You look at you know what happened to Cyborg Santos, a serious injury this past Saturday. And again, there's no negligence on the part of Bellator, but that is something that happened in their cage. That's just something that can happen just from day to day, you know, 
everyday life. Bad things can happen, and it's nobody's fault. Just it, it just happens what it happens. But now you're tempting fate, and you're considering putting T- Ken Shamrock in against Tito Ortiz. And if you look at that matchup, Ken, who is now 50-plus, you know, even in his prime, had a tough time even being competitive against Tito. If Ken Shamrock fights Tito Ortiz in today's environment, he gets hurt. Not only does he lose the fight, he gets hurt. Not only does he get hurt, he gets hurt bad. And I think anyone that knows the sport can see that coming a mile away. And if you're Scott Cook, you've got to know that. You've got to know that you're putting your company in a major liability spot and that you've dodged really catastrophic danger these past few months. Why would you invite that, that, that kind of danger? I mean, you know, do you not care about the well-being of Ken Shamrock? That is a terrible fight. I don't know any commission that would necessarily approve that. I would think they would have a tough time going to Texas or Illinois and getting that fight approved. That is how bad and lopsided that fight would be because you look at matchups and, you know, I, one thing that I always had an issue with with commissions, especially the commissions that didn't have a strong MMA knowledge, they would look at peripherals, they would look at metrics, and they would say, well, it's not an even matchup. But that's not how fighting works. It's not how athletics works. There's never truly a matchup of equals. But the way you can justify the match being on the level is, yes, certain uh, athletes are deficient in one area, but the, their opponent, you know, their weakness is the opponent's strength. And, and you know, a fighter, fighter A might be bigger, but fighter B might be quicker. Uh, you know, fighter A might be a tremendous wrestler, and fighter B may not be a tremendous wrestler, but he holds an advantage when it comes to striking. There's certain trade-offs. Ken Shamrock, there is nothing, there is no category when you break down that fight where he has an advantage over Tito Ortiz. He's the smaller fighter. He's not going to be, he's not going to have a strength advantage. He's not going to have a quickness advantage. You can even look at experience. You could say, well, Ken has the experience factor. Well, I don't think that's true. I think even Tito has the experience, the edge when it comes to experience because he has the more relevant recent experience and has fought a higher level of competition and has fought more more frequently. What path to victory does Ken Shamrock possibly have? There's no way he wins that fight. The only way he wins that fight is if someone in his corner throws a banana peel into the cage and Tito Ortiz doesn't see it and slips. That's the only way. Ken Shamrock can beat Tito Ortiz. Tito Ortiz, if that fight were to happen, he would slaughter Ken Shamrock. He would hurt Ken Shamrock. And if you care about the well-being of the fighters, you don't even think about making that fight. And Yeah, I mean, especially when your motto is uh, fighters first. But, like, why would you, as a promoter, why would you want to make that fight? It's, I have no idea. It, it, Ken is 0-3. What, what are you going to do? Well, it's best of seven? Uh, uh, yeah, look, I... I mean, outside of you think it can draw a lot of TV ratings. I mean, I, that's... but how big would the rating be? I mean, would it be a decent rating? Yes, but it would be nowhere near what the apex of their feud was. I mean, they they when they fought last time they fought was it two thousand five? And as I recall, wasn't that a Ultimate Fighter finale on Spike? Yes, because I think the pay per view that Ken made an argument that it was a screw job, and Dana White came out and said, "Well, we're gonna." You know, we're, we're going to do something for the fans. And they came back and they made it and they put it on Spike TV and it did a monster rating. I didn't, th- you know, I remember writing about it. I didn't think it was going to do a big rating because it's, I, I said, you know, Kenzo for two and he's been dominated by Tito. Who wants to see, see them fight a third time? There's no reason to do a rematch. Well, they did the rematch and I was wrong. It was a great rating, but I think that was what, 2005? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was a long time ago. Yeah, it's now 2016. That's over. It was over 10 years ago. What, what is the demand for that fight? 
I mean, what do you do with Tito, though? If Tito says he wants to fight, who do you give him? I mean, there was talk that Tito at one point was going to fight. I think it was New Year's Eve was going to fight Fedor. And I think you try to somehow make a fight between Tito and Fedor. Or you try to make a fight between Tito and Rampage. You know, but Tito versus Hoist, Tito versus Ken. No you know, interest. Uh, Tito versus Vandalay, that that might work, but Vandalay is not going to be eligible to fight in the U.S. till May. Till May. May, so that that's it's it's a long time from now. That's not a realistic option for for right now. So, but I I hope Tito was just BSing, and I hope he was saying something crazy, and I hope that uh, Scott Coker didn't really offer him an opportunity to fight Ken Shamrock for a fourth time. Kind of two follow-ups to bring up there. You mentioned about Fedor. How surprised were you when uh, you saw the news by his fight being overturned? Mild surprise, but I think that was so egregious that in order to save face, they, they had to do it. That was so egre- – it was just an egregious error. And if you want to retain any cred- credibility, you've got to – and it, it still wasn't completely overturned. I mean, it was r- ruled a no contest, correct? Uh, yeah. So Fabio Maldonado is still out a win there. You know, Fedor doesn't it, – it's not a loss for Fedor. Yeah, I mean, it'll be – you know, I mean, does UFC need Fedor for UFC 205? Well, I mean, you can't do Fedor versus Brock now necessarily. Who would no. you put Fedor against? Man. Do you do the Fedor Verdum rematch? Is that big enough for Madison Square Garden? I don't know if it's big enough for Madison Square Garden, but you you know, you would want to find a heavyweight that is probably in that two forty to two thirty range. You know, a smaller heavyweight. I mean, you put him up against Sarah against. Someone who's 265, man, that could be really ugly. But it needs to be a big name. It needs to be a Josh Barnett, and you can't do Frank Mir. That would be a uh, – marquee-wise, that would be a great name, you know, name. I mean, do you do Fedor versus Orlovsky? Do you do the, do the rematch? I don't know if you can necessarily make that fight. I, you know, it, with, without Brock there, there, there aren't a lot of options. You could say maybe Randy Couture, but I think things are so strained between him and the UFC, you can't even go there. Yeah, I mean, it's – it's going to be interesting to see what happens with UFC 205. But the other thing, uh, kind of follow up mention is, you know, some comments Scott Coker made about, you know, his feeling about his evaluation of Bellator since the UFC sale. Yeah, he, you know, he said that based on the UFC selling for four point, you know, whatever billion, that their valuation went up. Well, that's not necessarily the case because if you follow, you know, investing from a, 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 a you know, true market street buttoned up st- standpoint, you know, your, your, your valuation as a company is based on your earnings. It's not based on what someone else sold for. It's, it's based on the er- it's based on your own earnings. You could say, well, in the real estate market, houses are sold based on comps. That's true. But if, if it, just because the house next to you sold for 500,000, once people, you know, get past the curb and they get in your house, if your house is dilapidated, you're not going to sell it for $500,000 just because your neighbor's house went for 500000 And I'm not saying Bellator's dilapidated. What I'm saying, though, is that their earnings are their earnings. UFC's earnings are their earnings. And there's a, quite, there's a big disparity between what the UFC generates and what Bellator generates. Now, 
you could say a company is worth what someone's willing to pay for it. And sometimes there's a bubble within a certain genre, a certain field of business. And, you know, investors get hot on an idea and one company sells for, for another amount. And, you know, one company sells for one amount and, and the investors that didn't get a shot at that one company, they want to stay and compete. They want to get into that, you know, aspect of, of business. So they go for the next biggest competitor and they pay a premium to buy the next biggest competitor. But, you know, Lorenzo Fertitta made a comment many years ago and I think it still holds true. The UFC is hot. The market has shown that the UFC is hot. It's not shown that MMA as a sport is hot. So, you know, could there be a bubble impact, bubble effect in, in certain uh, industries that, that uh, allow a company to sell at a very high multiple just based on what other companies in, in, in the same genre are selling for? Absolutely. You look at a lot of the, you look at the tech sector and some of the runs that we've seen over the years when it comes to dot coms and other technology based companies. But, there's not a bubble in MMA right now. I mean, let's be honest about it. If someone came to Viacom right now with $100 million, I think they'd sell Bellator in a heartbeat. Yeah, I agree. I mean, you, you look at the next highest bidder in the, the, the bid to acquire the UFC, and it was reportedly China Media Capital. The, 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 the reports that I've seen was that their, their bid, their losing bid was for $3.95 million. You know, is, is China media capital? They so gung ho on getting the on the, getting in on the MMA industry that they're going to go in and, and spend you know more than what the valuation suggests for Bellator. You know, are they even going to be interested in, in a company like Bellator? I, I would seem to have doubts. I think that it was a one one horse uh, race, and you know, a bunch of people wanted to get the UFC, and and I don't think you're going to see those companies necessarily look to uh, invest in companies that aren't name the UFC, and then try to go, go ahead and compete with the UFC. Yeah, it, it, you know, it's, I mean, I think at Bellator, at the end of the day, you just got to worry about, you know, just trying to trying to get people interested in your product. And, and I'll tell you this, I think the, you know, a decision they made last week, it seemed to be on social media that it's got the fan base a little bit excited, and that is Patricio Pitbull going to 155 to take on Benson Henderson in the main event of Bellator 160. It's going to be kind of a, a hybrid type event, Friday night MMA, Saturday night. It's going to be boxing, same venue, the, the Honda Center there uh, in Anaheim, California. And, you know, it, you know, someone asked me, I said, what's your first thoughts of this? And I said, really, it's twofold. First off, we're going to see a huge size difference on fight night between Benson Henderson and Patricio Pitbull. But the other thing is, is anyone who's ever talked to uh, Patricio Pitbull, they all know this guy's like, I'll fight any weight, anytime. It doesn't matter to him. I, I love Patricio. I'm excited for the fight, but I wish he hadn't t- accepted the fight. I-, I-, I think it's a terrible matchup for him. Yeah, but I, mean, but I did get the sense, and, and I've been saying this for a couple of weeks, that Bellator needed to do something to, to get fan base excited. And it seems like this has kind of got the fan base uh, a little bit excited. And, uh, you know, it's... It's interesting that maybe they weren't going the Benson Henderson, Josh Thompson route. Um, maybe that means Josh Thompson's going to get that title fight against Michael Chandler. Maybe you know Chandler's going to sit on the sideline. Who knows? But I think it, at least it's, it's taking that step of getting your your fan base excited about a fight that you know yeah. the hardcore fans are, are not good, you know are excited about it and aren't going to crap on. Well, it's good matchmaking by Bellator because you have a, a major acquisition that you've spent a lot of money on in Ben Henderson, and his first fight in the organization was a loss. And it's MMA. Losses happen. Good fighters lose fights. But what, you know, and you can, you can get over, you know, him losing his debut. But if he comes in and he goes 0 for 2, 
that's an issue when you're paying him as much as what you're paying Ben Henderson. That could be a problem. So, you know, you, you can't necessarily automatically put him right in the 155 picture because he hasn't won a fight at 155 in your organization, and he's coming off a loss at 170 for the title. So it looks kind of – it's tough to do back-to-back title fights – when the guy's coming off a loss. So you need to put him in there and, and kind of build him back up a little bit. But if you put him in with a Josh Thompson, that's, you know, Ben Henderson would be the favorite, but that's a dangerous fight. And you risk, you know, Ben Henderson going over two. So what you need to do is you've got to put him in a matchup where stylistically it's to his advantage. And you've got to put him in there against a relevant, relevant, meaningful name. And, and Pitbull has that name. If Henderson beats him, that's, that's going to be a relevant win in the minds of a lot of people. And stylistically it, it looks great for Ben Henderson. That That is a beautiful fight stylistically for Ben Henderson. He's going to have the range. He's going to have the size. And he's going to have a lot of advantages there. And he's a wrestler. And, and Patricio, his wrestling has improved, improved over the years. But it's still not anywhere near the level of Ben Henderson. So you got a bigger guy with a better wrestling pedigree. And Ben Henderson, if he takes uh, Patricio Pitbull down, you know, I'm sure Patricio will go for some submissions and tacks off his back. But Ben Henderson's going to be able to control him. Well, also, and uh, to, to note on on Patricio moving up, uh, you know, this is this is just another sign where Daniel Strauss is not close to returning yet. Um, you know, he's he's had you know issues with that hand since that win over Patricio and, and some surgeries, and and he's outlined it. You know, so it's really it wouldn't surprise me at some point that maybe you maybe you see them go to an interim title fight. There's a lot of people that don't that have really started to question whether we even see. Daniel Strauss in 2016. Time's going to tell whether whether we end up seeing him there. But uh, I will say this: uh, they've, on Friday night, they've got a big matchup coming up of, of Daniel Weichel and Emmanuel Sanchez. Look out for that one. Also, Darren Calwell, Joe Timingo. I actually talked to Joe Timingo last week. Had a really a great interview with him. Just uh, you know, great you know, just you know, full of energy that he had. But it was interesting after I did uh, a round of interviews, and one of those happened to be Darren Calwell. I ended up finding out that. Yeah, he had he had a fight. Uh, it, this was at uh, at Revel in Atlantic City back in 2014, where he got a, a win. I want to say in about 90 seconds or so over Joe Pingatori. And it, and it just ironically, I had a, an interview scheduled with Joe uh, for about his upcoming CES fight, and ended up learning that that fight had been overturned to a no contest. I've a, I've asked the New Jersey Commission about it. They have not, uh, you know. Joe says, you know, told me that his understanding was it was for a failed drug test. Uh, but uh, you know, with, since there was so little time between fights, it was you know just under six months. Kind of hard to figure out what you know type of substance he may have failed positive for. Yeah, you know that does happen. I've seen it before. You know, the the time where I directly experienced that. The uh, Anthony Morrison, that massive knockout I've talked about here on the past uh, for a fight that I match made for uh, Matrix Fights in Philadelphia when he got Nick Gonzalez with that devastating spinning back fist where I thought Nick Gonzalez may have died in the cage. That was a, originally a win for Anthony Morrison. And then a couple months later, I you know just going through Sure Dog Fight Finder, I saw it ruled a no contest, and I said, "Well, that that can't be right. What's what's going on here?" And since I trained at the same gym as Anthony, I said, "Anthony, what 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 happened there?" And kind of got the real story from him. And it was due to you know a test failure. Um, and I think that's out there. If you know if you if you know if you follow Philadelphia MMA, you know that that that's the reason why. If you go to that fight and you look at it, Sure Dog, why it's a no contest when it was really a win for Anthony Morrison, and it was not a performance enhancing drug. It was really nothing that could enhance his performance, but it was a drug that 
you can't test positive for in the state of Pennsylvania. You can't have it in your system, and he had it in his in his system. Uh, it is what it is, and you know it's kind of weird to see fights overturned for for a drug that in many states is now not only legal for medicinal purposes, but is just legal in general and been extremely decriminalized. And it's it's. It, it does happen, and and you know it's PA is real close to Jersey, and I guess you know when that shows up in your system, uh, it gets overturned. There's no press release sent, and the the commissions don't release information due to privacy rules. But you you know why it's it's no longer a win when it should have been a win. Yeah, and so uh, you know, so he's now uh, has a one no contest on his record, and uh, you know obviously a title shot online there coming up on on Friday night Bellator. 159. Also, uh, you know, you have Melvin Gillard, David Rickles, co-main event of, of that fight card as well. Also, uh, a little news coming here as we're recording this show. Uh, obviously, we'll oh have uh, much to uh, we can kind of talk about, but Paul Giff uh, tweeting out here on Monday evening that Bellator is denying Zach Light's allegations, f- files a cross-complaint for theft of VIP ticket money and breach of contract. Whoa. So that is going to be interesting to see how that plays out inside a courtroom in California. So they're they're claiming he he stole money. Yes, yes, and uh, you know that's uh, that's consistent to what I've heard in the past. That that was you know this was going to come out at some point. Really? Yeah. So you know, look, it, it's obviously it, this is all heading for a courtroom. And uh, it'll be interesting to see when all this goes under oath and how exactly. I mean, obviously, both sides have to prove their case, you know. Yep, and that's just for the record. That's not the Zach Light that that I knew. Yeah, so I mean, obviously, you know, Bellator will have to prove their claims, and Zach Light will have to prove his claims, and so we're going to see it all unfold in a courtroom, uh, you know, sometime in the future, whenever a court date is finally you know set on that. Well, I thought they would pay and it would go away, and boy, was I wrong. This is going to get really ugly and, and a lot of mudslinging. It's already taking place. It's, oh, yeah. Uh, I don't think it's going to be good for either party. I really no, don't. no, it's not going to be good for, for either party there. But, you know, something we kind of uh, we alluded to earlier, but we, we you didn't get a chance to kind of explain on it, was about the insurance process. Yeah, so it's a little inside baseball, but we have a listener base that, that likes that kind of stuff. So what happens is when a fighter fights on a show, when they come in, you know, before they even come in, you, you get an insurance policy on the, the fighters, all the fighters on your card, and it's mandated by the commission, and the commissions have a mandate of what level of insurance, what level of coverage you need to have. So you have to secure that policy. It's based on the number of fights that you have on your show. So you secure that policy, you send a copy of that policy to the commission, they're satisfied, you get your, you know, you get your license and and that's part of the licensing process, you're good to go. So the about the either the day before the fight or or the day of the fight, you either give the commission claims forms or you have claims forms in a folder and you announce to the fighters and I did this quite often during pre-fight meetings, I would say if there's a situation where you or your fighter is hurt. I don't want, you know, I hate to, you know, talk about it right now, but it's important that you guys have this information before you go to the hospital. You know, assuming that it's not something that you're, you're stretched out of the cage, you need to come to us and either go to us or the commission. If certain states mandated that the, the commission have the claims forms, you need to get a claims form before you go to the hospital. 
Because if you go to the hospital without that claims form, our insurance company is going to make it even more difficult than it normally would be for you to get covered. So make it easier on yourself. Get the claims form before you go to the emer- you go to the emergency room. So you make the fighters and their camps aware of that. Uh, if there was an injury, if a fighter f- was hurt and they needed to go to the hospital, you know, we would arrange transportation for them and we would give them a claims form so that, that when they got to the hospital, when they were asked about payment, they could give that form to the, the uh, medical billing department and the proper paperwork and procedures were done. Typically, what would happen after that? The fighter in the ensuing days when they would get home – and bills would be sent to them, and they would and they would have to get follow up care in certain cases, and get even more bills sent to them. They would get contacted by our insurance company, and what the insurance company does, and you know, it's it's something that I learned the hard way. Uh, you know, my ex wife w- was a fighter; she had an injury on a Bellator show, and the first thing the co- company does when they reach out to you, they want to know if you have existing medical coverage, because like all insurance companies, and they're all the same; it's no different. They would look for any way out uh, of covering and, and paying out for medical coverage. And if you have existing insurance, they, they would like the existing insurance that you have under your own name to cover that. And I know in my case, I, I was kind of oblivious to that's the, the process working that way because I know, uh, you know, personally, you know, from my situation, the insurance that I had secured for me and my family at the time, I didn't want to claim a fighter injury under my own insurance because what was going to happen is that was just going to raise my own personal premium that, you know, when you, when you collect on insurance, when you, when typically, whether it's auto insurance, homeowners insurance, health insurance, when you, when you have a claim, when it's time to renew, typically they try to recover some of that money by raising your premium. So I, I was just like, I was not having it, having that, but that's how the process works. They, they, the insurance company reaches out, uh, they want you, they want to see what level of insurance you have already existing. If you don't have insurance that's going to cover an injury that took place in a mixed martial arts cage, then they start to, uh, you know, talk to you and get more information so that they can start pay out, paying out some of the bills. But they have policies and procedures and it's a lot of paperwork. And unfortunately, fighters aren't necessarily very patient people and they're not very good necessarily when it comes to filing paperwork. And if you know anything about health insurance companies, like I said before, they look for any excuse, any loophole to try not to pay what you're, what you deserve to have covered under the policy of your, of your uh, coverage. So uh, we would often have a lot of issues there because, you know, there's a certain procedure that the insurance companies want you to follow. And my experience was that the companies that we worked with, if the fighter followed that procedure, if they followed the paperwork the right way, filled out the right things and, and, and you know, had it signed by the right, you know, medical physicians, you know, there, there wasn't, wasn't that much trouble getting your, your bills covered. But a lot of fighters didn't follow the protocol. They felt it was too frustrating for them. And then they would call us and, you know, get upset saying that we weren't covering helping them. We weren't doing anything to help them. Our insurance, what they, we didn't have real insurance. We weren't covering them. So what we finally did was we had a internal liaison and that guy was Ryan Congleton and Ryan helped the fighter through that process. And even then Ryan would still get pushed back saying, well, why do I have to fill out this form? Why do I have to give them this information? And that's just how the process works. And it wasn't something that was isolated to just fighters getting covered. It's how 
any serious injury is covered under any type of insurance. That companies ask you a lot of questions. They want to know why they're going to be paying out, you know, as much money as they as they're asked to pay out to doctors. They're looking for any way out of it. Uh, but as long as fighters went through the process and followed the protocol, they got covered. But it, it was definitely an arduous process, and there's going to be a lot of paperwork, and there's going to be a lot of bills sent to Cyborg Santos. Yeah, but it's a lot of great information kind of to throw it out there of exactly what kind of goes on on and, fight night. And sorry to, to interrupt there, Jason, but the way it works is the fighters get the bills and they interact with, they have to interact with the health in, with the health insurance company. There's not a magic wand solution. It's unfortunately it's not a situation where Cyborg Santos just goes to the hospital, hands them a card with Bellator's information on it and he never sees a bill and never has to talk to anyone and it's taken care of. I wish that's how the process went. Uh, but that's not how it works. It's it's like any other insurance claim that that a normal person would make. There's a lot of paperwork, a lot of red tape, and a lot of hoops you have to jump through before those bills are actually covered. But uh, a lot of good information there for the listeners here of the MMA Insiders podcast about exactly what goes on here. Hopefully, uh, we'll get some more. Uh, can start digging around exactly of of what Bellator's uh, cross uh, you know lawsuit against uh, Zach Light's going to be. Uh, we'll talk a little bit more about that on the. Next episode of the MMA Insiders podcast. And another thing I want to add regarding the Cyborg Santos, because there's a lot of people saying, well, because even though Cyborg changed it, the GoFundMe account, they're still defending that account saying, well, he's got future earnings to worry about. Well, here's the thing, and I can't get into specific details, but I can tell you this and I can speak in generalities. Major MMA organizations, major promotional companies, especially ones that are owned by major corporations, billion-dollar corporations, they have what is known as death and dismemberment insurance. So not only are your medical costs covered under a separate policy, there is another policy. Uh, you know, when you're talking about major big league MMA, it's called death and dismemberment insurance. If you were to die in a ring, and I hate to, you know, get, go be morbid and cover that policy, but, you know, I want to talk, you know, openly and frankly and, and inform people. If a fighter were to die and if they were covered by a death, death and dismemberment policy, their family would be paid out a certain amount of dollars. It's a, it would probably be a six-figure number. If there was a dismemberment issue where a fighter was injured to the point where not only could they not compete as a at- professional athlete anymore, but they could not hold down a regular normal job, they also would receive a certain amount of money. So... Cyborg Santos was not only already covered, his medical costs were not all already, you know, not were already, uh, they were already covered. Uh, they were already addressed even before he stepped in that cage. He already had that assurance. That was already a decision that was made. It was not something that was decided after the fact. And also, if he uh, were to not be able to compete ever again or work ever again, there, there most likely is a level, a secondary policy, another level of insurance that in all likelihood, because you're talking about a major corporation there, that would address that issue. So it's very nice of Scott Coker and Bellator to give that win bonus. But if Cyborg Santos couldn't work again, I believe most likely that there was another policy that would have taken care of him as well. Also, uh, another note that's got to get mentioned here, uh, Very, it was a small note that I know a couple people covered, but Michael Page recently signed a new deal with Bellator. He's got four fights left on his current contract. And I think that was a smart move by him. I don't know if existing in the UFC Shark Tank would have been the right move for him at this stage of his career. I think being affiliated with Spike TV and Viacom and Bellator, he is going to be featured, and they have a vested interest in in promoting him. I mean, they could promote him and focus on him the same way the UFC focused on Conor McGregor and Mm -hmm. would – 
would Michael Page get that level of attention if he was in the UFC? Uh, yeah, that that's a question mark. But it was, I was surprised you didn't see maybe Michael Page test the free agency market though. Just maybe what, maybe they made him an offer he couldn't refuse. Yeah, I mean, and and if that happens, hey, God bless him. But uh, that that was a little note that uh, I was kind of surprised Bellator went like maybe put out a press release out for that one. That's Why, a big resigning. That's a huge resigning. Yeah, I would thought that maybe that'd be something you'd put a, a press release out to kind of say, hey, by the way, uh, we, we've just inked Michael Page to a new contract. You know, a year, a year from now, he could be the biggest star in that company. He very well could be. I mean, at this point, he hasn't shown to be that TV draw, but you know, maybe as time goes on and uh, he he becomes that TV draw because obviously he, he has a fighting style that you know he he's must watch TV. There, there's no question about it. He has that fighting style that that fans want to uh, sit there and choose. So, of course, uh, you know, this weekend you got Bellator UFC on Fox. So, uh, busy weekend in the world of mixed martial arts. Of course. Uh, Sam, probably means since we're in this show, some major news will probably break in the next five minutes. Well, this is the Zach Light stuff is crazy because if if when did Bellator believe that Zach Light was stealing money from the company, and and why didn't they? Is this something they found, you know, just recently after doing an internal investigation, or is this something they knew about while he was employed with the company? And if they knew about it. Why did why is it just coming out now? Why didn't they fire him on the spot and go after file criminal charges? Maybe that has something to do with maybe this is something when Zach wasn't around the company, maybe they found out at that point. Or maybe they just thought they wanted to end the relationship. Yeah, and- but Zach's not a dumb guy. If he was really I find it hard to believe that he would do something like that, but if he did do something like that, why would he proceed with this level of lawsuit knowing that that's something that could be dug up? I don't know. I mean, that's that's why I sit there and say is both sides are going to have to prove their uh, their arguments in a court of law and prove uh, their claims. And uh, you know, Paul Giff, who obviously is a writer for Elbow dot com, you can follow him on on Twitter at MMA Analytics. And as they're recording the show, all, all he has tweeted is that uh, he says Bellator denies Zach Light's allegations, files cross complaint for theft of VIP ticket money, breach of contract, and Jason Cruz who. <laughs> right, right well, for <laughs> well, this escalated. <laughs> Understatement of the year. Yes, and I'm sure that'll be uh, probably a major topic uh, on the dish on next uh, edition of the MMA Insiders Podcast. Anything else you want to mention before we get out of here, Sam? Just follow me on Twitter at Sam Kaplan MMA. That's Kaplan with a C. And uh, be sure to uh, like our brand new Facebook page, the MMA Insiders. Oh, that's all you got to do is search right on Facebook. We're right there. Also, be sure to give me a follow on Twitter at Jason underscore Floyd. Also, this podcast is on Twitter at MMA Insiders PC. If you ever have any question or comment for the podcast, that is the best way to get a question or comment to us right there on Twitter at MMA Insiders PC. Of course, you can also uh, so listen to the show, RadioInfluence.com, iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, SoundCloud. If you are interested in being advertised on the show, just send me an email Jason at RadioInfluence.com. So that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the MMA Insider Podcast. Follow Jason Floyd and Sam Kaplan on Twitter. Find them at Jason underscore Floyd and at Sam Kaplan MMA. This is the MMA Insiders Podcast on Radio Influence. This is Vincent Hill. You've seen me on CNN, HLN with Nancy Grace, Al Jazeera, and True Crime with Aphrodite Jones, just to name a few. Now I've got my own show on Radio Influence, and I'll be taking you 
Beyond the Badge. I'll take you behind the scenes and into the minds of those following and investigating America's top news stories. Beyond the Badge with me, Vincent Hill, can be found on iTunes, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, and the Radio Influence family. Let's enjoy this ride as I take you Beyond the Badge.